Hello and welcome to the Alex Icon Show. I'm really excited for today's episode. I have Alex Lieberman as a guest. And if you don't know who Alex Lieberman is, well, this is why you have to listen to this podcast. I was actually really inspired by Alex to create this podcast that you're listening to right now. He has a podcast called Founders Journal, where three times a week, he gives you insights into his journey as an entrepreneur and a founder. And why should you listen to Alex Lieberman in his podcast and on this podcast? Because in five years, he was able to take his company, Morning Brew, if you're not subscribed to that newsletter, highly recommend it. He was able to sell this business and scale this business, which was a newsletter for reported $75 million in five years. And he's not even 30, he's like 27. So incredible story, uh, very humble guy. As I was speaking to him, he was actually just talking out of his grandma's house. I don't think he even has a house. I don't think he's even bought anything since he sold his company for millions of dollars. Super humble guy, but so many things to, to learn from him. And this is why this is a must listen podcast. And after this podcast, make sure to check out Alex Lieberman on his podcast called Founders Journal. Just incredible. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Hey, Alex, welcome to the pod. It's, it's a pleasure having you here. First off, how are you today? <laughs> I am great. I'm excited for the weekend. I'm going to be touring some apartments this weekend, but I'm good. It's been a good week. How has life changed over the last five years? Nothing's really changed. A business happened in between, but no. Look, I think that life has changed a lot as a function of being a first-time founder. And I would say, obviously, it's changed in the sense of what I spend my time on every day has changed. I have spent every day since March of 2015 thinking about Morning Brew. And when you think about life, there are very few things that you think about every single day for multiple years on end. And I would also say I've changed a lot as a person. I would, I think I've become more mature, especially mentally, like more mature in thought. And, I, and that's one of the biggest things I've seen happen in the last five years from being an entrepreneur is I think it forces you to grow mentally very quickly. It forces you to understand yourself at a deeper level than you have. And while it being an entrepreneur running a business is professional, I think so many of those learnings have made me better understand myself just personally in my own personal life. So yeah, I, things have definitely changed in the last five years. Yeah, I think being an entrepreneur is one of the biggest growth journeys you can take because you have to constantly learn or you just won't grow. And one of those things that I want to ask you about, as you mentioned, in the last five years, it seems like nothing has changed. And I'm a big fan of your podcast, The Founders Journal, your really daily insights that you share with so many of your listeners in regards to your journey. And if you look back at the Alex that was just starting the business, is, do you, if you go back, did you still have the same type of insights that you have now, because sometimes I look back as well, I actually have some, and the, the great thing about what you're doing now is when you're recording, you go back and you hear yourself talk, you're like, oh, was, I'm still the same. So how right. has that changed over that time? Yeah. So I would say what hasn't changed is that the things I'm still, that I'm really good at today, like my superpowers, I think are still my superpowers. I don't think there's anything over the last five years that I have had a revelation, oh, wow, this was a hidden talent of mine. That hasn't happened to me. So I think there's a few things I'm really good at. I think I'm really good at storytelling. I think I'm really good at creative thinking. And I think I'm really good at relationship building and, and generally being empathetic. Other than that, I think the learning, one of the learnings over the last five years is that there are many things that I'm not great at. And for a long time, I resisted uh, being not great at things. I think my my way of being just someone who's competitive and wants to really be good at all of the things is I always would spend time focusing on the things that I'm not great at to improve, to try to just bring up my level on every possible skill. And I think one of the the fundamental things that I learned in entrepreneurship very early on was that if you want to grow as fast as your business is growing, and also, if you want to just have more like opportunity and serendipity happen in your life, 
I've generally found that doubling and tripling down on the things that you're really good at is the right strategy. And then hiring and outsourcing the things you're not exceptional at is the the right strategy as well. And it's funny because um, in Founders Journal, the, the most recent episode was we just hit our six-year anniversary of the business, March March 15th, I believe, March 14th. And so I did six lessons, the six biggest lessons of entrepreneurship in six years of running the business. And that was one of the lessons, which was understand yourself well enough to know what your superpowers are, and then focus on firing yourself from all of your non-superpowers as quickly as possible. And I think it's easy to say that in practice. It's a far more humbling thing to do in reality, because it's like for the last five years, I've spent my time on the things that, again, relate to storytelling, creative thinking, and relationship building, but I'm constantly having to be okay with the fact that I'm bringing someone on who's better than me at something that I used to do. And it's a really humbling experience. And if there's a word to describe entrepreneurship in general, I would say humbling is the word. That's a terrific word. And can you, how many staff does Morning Brew now have? We're at 90. Yeah, incredible. So as you say, it, you're aware of the fact of what is your superpower and what is your weakness. When it comes to actually then even understanding, have that awareness and then hiring and bringing those people on board, how did that go for you? For you? So I'd love to hear actually your kind of experience in the, on this journey of, okay, you start Morning Brew, you have this realization, okay, like we need to grow and I need to hire people that, which I may be weak at. But how yeah. do you how did you actually then execute? Because even going from whether it be two or three at the beginning uh, and then going to ninety, that is that is a, still a huge uh, movement. So how did you do that in those early days? Because I think it's probably harder to get going, and then you then have people doing it for you. Yeah, totally. So I think in the early days, it was one of the ways we did it was to really try to focus as much as possible on one North Star. And by doing that, I think it it really did help us keep out a lot of the noise in the decisions we made. So for example, our North Star, when we first started Morning Brew, and Morning Brew was nothing but a newsletter at the time. We didn't have multiple newsletters. We didn't have a podcast. We weren't talking about being a media brand. It was just a newsletter. And so for us, like the goal we were focused on was how do we make a single newsletter product into a very meaningful business? And in order to do that, we always talked about this like three-step cycle. And we talked about it all the time. It was create great content for the modern business leader because if you don't create exceptional content, we live in a world of content abundance. You'll simply, you won't have an audience if you don't do that. The second was get your great content in front of the right eyeballs, as in grow. Think about how you grow your audience. And the third was once you've gotten the right audience reading great content, be able to convince brands to spend money to get in front of that audience via advertising. And so that was our three-step cycle. And our view was if we could complete that cycle and then get that cycle to spin faster, opportunities would present themselves. And so in the early days, when I had first gone full-time on Morning Brew, we hadn't even done two of those steps. We were just doing create the content. We weren't growing it effectively or methodically. We weren't we weren't selling the content. We were monetizing it through advertising. And so for us, the focus was how do we get the flywheel to spin? Well, at first, I was spending time on writing the content of the newsletter because that was like, again, leaning into the creative side of me. Even though I didn't have a writing background, that was just the job that had to be done. Austin, my co-founder, was focusing more on growth and scaling the audience. And so the first thing that we did was, well, we went to raise money. We raised money because we needed to hire writers because we knew that I wasn't going to be the writer forever and I wasn't a good enough writer to make the content great. So if you think about me leaning into my skills, the first skill I leaned into was storytelling and relationship building because when we went to raise money put yourself in our shoes. We're two first-time founders. I'm 22 at the time. Austin's 20. We have no business model. We don't really know what we're doing. So one, like that was how I leaned into that skill. Once we raised money, the first thing we did was hired a great writer because- Wait, yeah, I'm going to stop you for a second. 
Yeah. You're 22, 21. You're raising money without a business model. How much did you raise and how did you raise it? And then we'll continue. Sorry, I think that's an yeah. important step because people are yeah. like, whoa. Like, yeah, so we raised a $750,000. We did not do it in a very traditional way at all. We didn't raise it from like institutional investors or generally not even like professional angels. What we did is, again, it was like our, it was our, instinct to just think about things as like linearly as possible. So we were like, we don't have money. What is the easiest way to get to money? And the way we did it was we had in the early days of Morning Brew interviewed uh, big business people just in our network, people who had been CEOs and had retired, who were connected to the University of Michigan network where we went to school or connected to our networks from where we grew up. I grew up in New Jersey. Austin grew up in Maryland. And so we had a spreadsheet of all these people. And so when we went to raise money, we just were like, oh, the most obvious thing to do is just reach out to these people who are really successful, who we've already interviewed, so we have a relationship with them, who have a lot of money, and ask them if they want to join for the journey. And basically, we had built out a a pitch deck, and I was actually looking back on the pitch deck earlier this week, and I think there's fascinating stuff to see in there, but it was a 16-slide pitch deck. One of the fascinating things to call out is we had a business plan in there. And it was a five-step business plan. We still haven't completed that five-step business plan. It's five years later in the business. And it's fascinating because the business plan is actually pretty spot on of exactly what we want to accomplish as a media company. But we just, uh, we got the timing wrong because we said we, when we were originally pitching investors in 2016 and 2017, we said that was our business plan for the next year. And it actually is something we're still working on five years later. But basically the pitch to investors was partially playing into their nostalgia and their emotions and partially playing into the opportunity. And so the way we played into the opportunity is we said, look, there's a ton of content out there, but it's about creating the right content for the right audience. And our view is that the emerging business leader is this massive group of people who are increasingly becoming important in society as decision makers and not just decision makers in businesses, but in life, like they're making more money. So they have more big life moments to spend on. And no one has the trust and loyalty of that audience. The Wall Street Journal doesn't, the Economist doesn't. And we believe we can serve as that vehicle because we are our audience. So we're going to know better than anyone what content they want. And so that was like the the path we led investors down in terms of why we're going to be different. We explained why newsletters are different. And we talked about how it's really important to not change the behavior of an audience because we knew our audience was already using email. It removed friction from the process of asking them to say, go download an app and look at our app. And that was like the story that we told was our plan was to continue growing this newsletter, ultimately make money on this newsletter, and then go into other types of content. And then the more emotional side we played into is we said, look, you provided a launch pad for this business. By doing these interviews with us, you got us on the map with other college students that got them interested in reading this. That's what got us here. And what we're asking is that you you join uh, this journey with us because we believe we can be the next big player in business media and you allowed us to enter this chapter. And so we want you to be able to see the whole thing out. And I think we were able to just play into a lot of these successful professionals almost in some ways, weren't thinking about it as an investment. They were thinking about it as a cost of learning and development of sorts, where like their people, I'll give you an example. One of the investors was a very senior executive at Time Warner Cable. He had a lot of money. And I think for us, he saw this opportunity. He saw in us what he saw in himself as a young, hungry entrepreneur and professional So I think a lot of our investors, we had 28 total checks invest in our business, individual checks. And I think for a lot of them, they weren't actually expecting any return. They, they, I think, just gave us the money expecting that they're going to learn a lot and be able to relive the glory days. And obviously, from what the outcome from the business has been, on a positive side, we actually were able to, I think, prove their expectations wrong. I think that's incredible. And I do angel investing as well. My best investment is an investment that I thought was a total charity check. And I think those are the best because you have no expectations to a certain degree. And a lot of the ideas that succeed are the ones that may, may not make sense. And I think totally. even to people listening right right now, 
to you and your story, I think what you're saying now, especially once you have the statistics, it actually makes sense. One of my previous actually guests mentioned the statistics. He actually has a investment fund vehicle that he's uh, putting together that is focused on uh, the millennials and the Gen Zs and that kind of generation. And his thinking as yours as well, by 2030, 70% of the global population is going to be millennials and Gen Zs. And as you said, exactly, it's like, who's going to serve them? But will that be relevant? So that's incredible that you had that foresight. But however, as you were in, in, you know, getting investment on board, what traction did you have in the business to be able to prove to people that, hey, there's, there is beyond just giving, giving us your money for this journey, there still must have been some sort of, they, they wouldn't have invested in you if they didn't still believe you would be able to execute on somewhat of a business model. So what was your traction like? And what were you uh, seeing as your vision in regards to building out and actually building a business to in the future? Yeah, for sure. So at the time, I believe when we pitched them, we had 60 or 70,000 subscribers. We were we had a modest audience, not a massive audience. Just for context, Morning Brew Today has 2.7 million subscribers just on our daily newsletter. And then across the whole ecosystem, we have 3 million uh, consumers. And so our pitch to them was that we have 70,000. We think we can monetize that 70,000 already um, for two reasons. One is because we think it's a big enough audience and we see the comps of other newsletters that have been able to make money around that size. And then the other thing we really leaned heavily on was on the engagement of this audience. We, we just had the metrics to show that our audience was absolutely obsessive and Morning Brew had turned into a daily habit. And I truly, I believe so fundamentally in like the power of habits. And if you can get someone not thinking about consuming your product and just going through the motions because it is such a staple of their day, it's such an incredibly powerful thing. And so what we always leaned on was at that point in time, I think we had a 50% daily unique open rate. And just for context, like the average business email newsletter has a 20% daily unique open rate. And so given that we were two and a half times the industry average, it, it just lent a lot, a lot of credibility to, we're not going after everyone, but this specific audience that we're going after, they care a lot about us. And part of the pitch also was, we think we can make money already. But by the way, when you go from zero people being full-time to both of us being full-time, we think that will only add fuel to the fire to accelerate growth from 70,000 to 100,000, 250,000 faster. But also it'll give us the capacity to go talk to brands to be able to pitch them on why they should advertise it in front of Morning Brew. And just to give context, it's like, it's t it took, it, there's like a, there's a tipping point or there's like a balloon effect I've talked about where you spend so much time in the early days just creating content thanklessly. Like you're not, you don't expect anything in return. You are just hoping that what you're creating is great and you can generally tell from how the audience engages with you. That was the first three or four years of Morning Brew. Even in 2018, Morning Brew did, I want to say, I want to get this right. 2018, we did three and a half million dollars in revenue. 2017, we did 175,000. So the year that we raised our uh, round, we did 175,000. The next year, we did 3.5 million. Last year, the business did around $21 million in revenue. And the hope is to do significantly more than that last year. And so I think... For us, like our point was to prove to them, we don't have the capacity right now to scale the audience and to monetize it effectively because we haven't been able to take the leap of faith because we can't take salaries. But if we are able to take the leap of faith, we think there's clear proof of concept that a very valuable, specific audience enjoys what we're doing. And we think we can accelerate that growth if we can work on it full time. I think this is incredible because as even people listening right now or the investors you're pitching in, I, when I would you know, subscribe to Morning Brew, I did not think it, it is a, a, a business that, you know, and I've been a subscriber for some time, uh, that was substantially, 
have so much revenue coming in and that you can even build a business around a newsletter. So where did you have this idea to think about approaching a different way? Because I think the email medium is in a way you, it's a space that yes, you do control, but then as you grow, there's also some different challenges that happen versus let's say having a direct website that people listen and there's pros and cons to both. However, as you said, becoming and building this media brand, uh, why did you choose the the newsletter and where did you have that belief that this is something you can actually build substantial business that you can then raise money on and grow? Yeah, so I think it was very much part luck and then part intuition. The, The intuition was saying, hey, it is very clear from talking to our classmates that they read traditional business news out of necessity rather than desire. That is what gave us the insight to like just make business content better. That is what got me to start writing the original newsletter. That was it wasn't even called Morning Brew at the time. It was called Market Corner. It was a PDF I was putting together. That was what that was like the spark that got us just creating something. Email was more just uh luck that it scaled so well. We weren't as thoughtful as we are about it now. It it was two things. It was cheap and people were already using it. So I think it was smart at the time. We didn't have a lot of money, so we couldn't choose to do a lot of things. And people were using it. That's why we didn't choose a website uh, or an app because our view is that would add friction to trying to get someone to sign up. If we told if we told people to start just going to our website, it would be a lot harder than saying sign up for our email and you will get it in your inbox every day where you're also getting all these other things that you're expecting to get. Same thing with an app. There obviously was a just an absolute boom in app creation and app downloads five years ago. In the last year, I'm, I've probably added two to three apps to my phone. And so even thinking about apps, like people always make the recommendation of why didn't we start with an app? I think for us, it was one cost of development didn't make it realistic, but also our view was like that added friction also because someone now had to go to the app store, they had to download it, but then also every single day they had to go to that app and they had no other reason to go there, but our single newsletter. I think this is a very important kind of point to point out to listeners is that in a way, sometimes you just want to be that fish that kind of just feeds on the whale. And, yeah. and just hangs out and you, you there's still a big market being on there. You want to, as you said, that friction and understanding that it, it's so important. So going back to that question that we drifted off in regards to identifying what is your superpower, I believe this is one of the most important things for individuals to understand and to be aware of is what are they strong at? And then going back is how do you, how did you then build out that scene? Because I, especially yep. in building a media brand and an editorial brand, how did you identify and then attract this talent? Because now it's a lot easier. You have the morning brew brand, you have fans and things. And however, at the beginning, in the early stages, I think that core first 10 people that you hire is probably one of the most important. So how did you then create and build your team on these people who have may have different superpowers that will then allow you, because as you said, even as you raise money and then you went from 175,000 to then breaking seven figures in a year, I believe that team helped you. So how did you, what were those hires? How did that look like? How did you build out your team to help you be more well-rounded? Yeah, I would say the big thing is that we, in this evolution of going from as Ben's son from Primary Ventures describes it as this evolution from family to tribe to village. If I was to describe the type of employees that we hired in the family stage, I think it was two qualities. It was Jack and Jill's of all trade, and it was unproven and not a negative around unproven, but not tenured professionals, like people who were very early in their career who had a ton of grit, a ton of curiosity, but hadn't necessarily risen up the ladder yet. As I think about where we are now as a village, it's the complete opposite. It's not Jack and Jill's of all trades. It is specialists and it is proven specialists. And so it was in the early days, again, we were always focused on hiring around those three steps, 
create great content, grow and sell. But we didn't have the legitimacy at the time or the foundation of the business as a business to hire senior people. And I think it makes a lot of sense, right? Like you people need are going to take a risk on you when you're at one employee or two employees. That's not for everyone. And by the way, we didn't have the money to compensate more senior people. And so for us, it not to say that it's just I think an analogy that works. Like I think our early hires were like angel investments in a way where it's, we were making bets on early employees and early employees were making bets on us. Like early employees were getting equity in the business and we were making bets on early employees that they could figure out how to work with us to grow this whole thing. And so if I'm thinking about what were the early like five or six employees, it was two writers. It was someone who was focused on growth specifically paid acquisition, as well as like cross promotions or referral program. And then there was someone on tech, like building out our referral program, building out our website. And then there was our first sales hire. And all of these people, the average age of our team when we were at 10 people was 24. The average age of our team was at 20, was 24. For a number of people, this was the person's first job out of college. For the other people on the team, it was their second job out of college everyone was doing 10 different things. So the person who was like working on our referral program was also working on paid acquisition, was also sending out the newsletter every day, was also helping to send out our swag. Like I literally remember when we were a small team and we were in a WeWork space and all 10 of us would literally have an assembly line, putting stickers in envelopes, licking envelopes, putting the addresses on envelopes and putting it in a box. Like that was how the team functioned. Today, the it looks very different where obviously it's not just about right, grow, sell. It's about right, grow, sell, but across seven different products and soon to be 15 different products. Like the machine has, I, I would actually say the, the main jobs to be done hasn't changed all that much, but it's the machine has gotten more complex. And so in order to do those jobs on each product, we need to be thoughtful about new things that we didn't have to think about in the beginning. Like obviously our, we have an HR function now. We didn't have to worry about that in the beginning because it's like the culture was the culture created among 10 people. And what was our onboarding process? What was our recruiting process? Those weren't things we had to think about. But now as we're hiring, we've hired 20 people in the last quarter. You need a an HR function to do that. Same thing with like data. We weren't thinking about data in the early days of the business because that wasn't a priority. That wasn't what was going to keep the lights on. But now as we are a business that's spending a lot of money on paid marketing, as we want to understand what new products to launch, understanding what our audience clicks on, what what causes people to unsubscribe to our newsletters, how long they are subscribed for, that where the most quality subscribers come from, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, email newsletters, et cetera, that all matters a lot more. So I would say that the big transition that's happened over time is we focused on taking bets on younger, less experienced generalists in the early days who they took a bet on our business and then we took a bet on them to now more proven people that have built out teams before that we can now trust to build out their respective orgs. Great. And as you went from, as you said, family to tribe and now to, to village, what were those key hires that really created that growth? Because I believe in each organization, uh, there's, I believe somebody re- referred as, you have, uh, I forget the term, but it's like, they're able to really get it in regards to drive uh, the overall business growth. And there's like maintainers and there's actual people that, that grow the business. So what? who are those individuals, whether it be at the beginning, in the family yep. phase or in the, in the tribe phase, that really were able to create that next level of growth in the organization because they obviously were the key hires as well to expand and grow the business. Yeah, I would say in in the early days, it's ever obviously in the early days, every employee was really important. So I would say I'm going to name a few people, but it's a, it's going to be more than that. Our first writer, who is now our managing editor, 
he was like the unlock for our business to create great content that people loved. Like at the end of the day, we are a media company. And if Morning Brew wasn't able to hone its voice in the early day of being witty, approachable, conversational, like truly audience centric, none of this would have worked. And I think it's remarkable to see this guy that his name's Neil. He had never written professionally before, but he had an incredible application to the business. And now he's running a newsletter team that goes out to 2.7 million people every single day. It's wild to see just the responsibility he's accumulated, having never worked in a newsroom before. He was a great unlock because he established our voice. And that is, I believe, one of the biggest moats of our business. And what creates loyalty is people feel like Morning Brew is talking to them when they are reading our newsletter. And it also created a foundation for now as we go into other forms of content, podcasting, video, social, et cetera. There was a starting point to say, how does the Morning Brew voice evolve as you move across mediums? So he, he was a huge one. The second, what I would say is our first growth hire, because under her, we went from not spending any money on paid marketing to spending money on paid marketing. And that is what caused the acceleration in Morning Brew's audience. I'm going to mess up what year it was. I want it, it was, it must have been 2018 to 2019. We went in that year from 100,000 subscribers to uh, a million subscribers. And that was largely because of the growth strategy that she deployed combination of spending significantly more on paid acquisition, setting up a lot of partnerships. And because when you make money in newsletter advertising, it's based on the size of your audience. Obviously, as we grew the size of our audience, like the our revenue just grew with that. And that's why we went in one year from $175,000 in revenue to $3.5 million in revenue. So that was a, a huge unlock for just truly turning from like a nice side project to a business. The other big hire was our head of sales who we hired. When we hired our head of sales, I was still running the sales team. And by running the sales team, it was like I was in market selling the brew every day. I had two or three people under me who were all like really junior sales employees. And it, there was no process. There was just like us all doing every job that a sales organization does from prospecting to selling to account management to integrated marketing, like all the jobs of an org, all four of us were doing. When our head of sales joined, he was the most senior hire we had ever made. So I think I want to say he's 33 or 34. And he was by far and away the oldest at the time. I would say like our average age as a team is closer to that now than it is to my age. I'm 27. And he had built teams before. He had been a part of scaling companies. And so when we hired him, it's what allowed us to really go from like a sales team to a sales organization. And so that was a, a huge hire as well. So those are the first ones that come to mind. Thank you so much for that. And in regards to, as you were, like I said, also building out the organization, how do you then see, and do you see a difference? Because I think as entrepreneurs, what happens, as you said, you graduate from this level of like just hiring journalists to hiring people with experience that are more specialized. I, I think as entrepreneurs, we have this sort of, I love the people who are like, who are able to be more generalist and able to be gritty and things like that. However, and I don't always care about education or experience when hiring. Have you found that actually hiring people, as you said, in your head of sales or in other roles makes a big difference? Does experience really matter when expanding and bringing a team? Or is that being young and having that ambition and that drive more important? Over the years now, what are you gravitating towards? My view is it is so dependent on the what org of the business it is and how senior the hire is. The way that I think about it is that the more senior the employee, the higher the stakes, right? Because it, every action that they take, every strategy they set, every hire they decide to make, it, it, it's almost like the analogy I think of is like when you think of a tail wagging, if you just wag the tip of the tail, only the tip wags. But if you wag like the base of the tail, the entire thing wags. And when I think about a senior hire, like the senior hire sits at the base of the tail, their action 
has a ripple effect on the entire organization. And I truly believe like a bad senior hire can bring down an entire company. All that to say, at least in my experience, because I'm only a a one-time founder at this point, I don't think I'm good enough to take big risks on senior hires. I think I feel way more comfortable taking risks on junior and mid-level employees who don't have the exact right experience, but they have the grit to figure it out. Because what I'll also say is I think a lot of junior mid-level skills, not that they're not hard, but are learnable on the job. I think the I think higher level skills like setting a a strategy for your organization, setting a hiring roadmap, creating processes for your org, managing effectively. I I don't think you can learn that on the spot or at least I don't necessarily want to take the risk and I think we've seen both sides of this where it's really effective and it's where it's really ineffective. And to me, it's such a stark contrast when you have a senior person who has built teams before, who has set a strategy, who has set a roadmap of hiring people that helps you execute that strategy and it all works seamlessly. Your business moves with more momentum than you ever imagined possible. When you have a senior person that isn't setting strategy effectively, isn't doesn't have a hiring roadmap that makes sense given what their strategy is and isn't executing on it fast enough, it feels like the whole business is standing still. And so my answer would be, I think I feel comfortable at this point taking risks at junior and mid-level employees. At senior levels, I want someone to do as similar of an experience as we're hiring for. How did you, as you were speaking about this, how does it make sense that you're able to scale the organization now to 90 people? Obviously, you didn't do it alone. So who did you put in place maybe then to be able to execute this hiring plan and build this organization that has your vision of the company that you want to build? I think, is that how you kind of worked? Is that you you have this certain vision? It's very clear. You then put hire a person who's then be able to execute how did the uh, love for you to walk through yeah. this example uh, i think our vision has always been the same but the manifestation of the vision has changed so it's like uh the famous simon sinek golden circle ted talk of the why the how and the what of your business the why of our business has never changed it's empower the modern business leader with engaging and accessible content the how of our business has changed and the what has changed. Meaning for a long time, we thought we were just going to do new newsletters. Like for in the beginning, it was, we're just going to do a single newsletter. Then it was like, we're going to do several newsletters. Then it was like, we want to go from a newsletter business to a media brand. And so I think what we've realized is when we've hired people, even in the earlier days to build out teams, the end goal was... The end goal has gotten more ambitious throughout. And as the end goal gets more ambitious, it requires more and more senior leadership who has overseen more things. And so I think the positive of that is as our ambition has grown, the business has grown, which has allowed us to hire more senior people that we wouldn't have been able to hire in the beginning. But I do think it creates difficult conversations because I think a lot of the people who were like running teams or had a lot of responsibility in the beginning probably aren't the right people as your ambition grows to run the team to 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 help see that new manifest manifestation of your vision. And so I think that leads to a lot of conversations where either one, we've allowed people to escalate into these new roles and realize they just didn't have the experience, or we've had to have conversations where we want to hire someone more senior over the person who was previously running a team because we think that more experience and more perspective is needed to now attain a loftier manifestation of the vision than we've ever had. And so to your point, it's a really hard thing because especially for a business like ours that has grown so fast, this is, it's, there's a term for this, which is like Peter principle, where the Peter principle says that every employee is promoted to the point of incompetence. And the whole idea is that as employees do really good jobs, you promote them. But at some point, if you promote them too fast, they're no longer the the best person to be in that spot. If you go to the marketplace, you can find someone at the same market price that is more effective because they have more experience and such. And I think that's honestly what we have found. 
is that because we grew so fast, we simply needed more experience to attain the loftier goals that we had for the business. How does the Peter principle apply to the founder himself? It's a great question. Honestly, it's something that I think about all the time because I think that in so many ways, I am higher level than I've ever been in the business. And that's because the people doing the things, like the people setting the strategy in their org, building the teams, executing, are simply better than me than I would be in those given roles. And so I always go back to this question that I ask myself, which is, Basically, it's three things. It's what are the things I'm really good at? What are the things that are highest leverage use of my time? So for every minute of time put in, the output of value is highest. And what are the things that the business needs most? And so for me, like I've done this exercise as the business has grown and it's gotten harder and harder as I continue to fire myself out of more and more roles. And it's simply the business has evolved into no longer like really a startup. And so to me, it's, I, I always go back to my superpowers are storytelling, creative thinking, and relationship building. The highest level th leverage things I can do right now, honestly, in my mind, are being the wind at the sails of the business. And what I mean by that is we know where the ship is going. Like we know the island that the ship is going to, that direction has been set. And honestly, my co-founder, Austin, does an exceptional job of being the captain of the ship, of making sure that everyone in the organization is rowing in the right manner to make sure that the boat isn't spinning, but that it's continuing to go to that island. And to me, what I think a lot about is the highest leverage thing for me to do is how can I provide so much wind, like gale force winds at the, the sails on this boat to get the boat to go to the island as fast as possible. And so in a lot of ways, to me, what that means is like leveraging my position as co-founder uh, and an executive of the business in order to accelerate revenue, in order to accelerate hiring, in order to be the best extension of Morning Brew's brand in the marketplace. And it's weird because that to me is so antithetical to what I've always described as like productivity in my mind but I fundamentally believe it is what is the most high value thing to the business that I can do right now. That's incredible. One of my favorite books of all time, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, it's called Traction by Gina Whitman. <laughs> yeah, so that's what we use at Morning Brew. Amazing. So I've, our previous business that we scaled and built and sold was built on Traction. I'm so grateful for that book. And as you may recall from this book, is there's a whole dynamic of understanding visionary integrator roles. So would you say in your business, is your partner the integrator, you're the visionary? How does th those dynamics play in your business? Or is there somebody else that you maybe brought on as the integrator of the business? I would love to hear about that. Yeah. So I would say Austin is the integrator and I'm the visionary. I think that's exactly right. Is in a lot of ways, we know where the business is going a year from now, maybe two years from now. I think what I like spending my time on is what is Morning Brew's next act? As we go from newsletter business to media brand, what comes after that? What, what makes us go from eight-figure to nine-figure and beyond business? That's what I like thinking about. I think Austin is exceptional at taking that and basically saying, these are all the decisions we could make. These are the decisions we should make based on the opportunity cost. This is what I think we sh we can accomplish in a year or two years. And this is the teams we need in order to do. And yeah, I think we very much play in that way. That's incredible. And so how with this as well, partnerships are like marriage. They can be very tricky. And, and I think having a, a business partner is in fact can be even more important decision than getting married to a certain degree. So how has your relationship also as partners have evolved? It seems like you already have great things. I think for listeners listening yep. at the moment, I just want to make that point clear. Uh, that's why that book is so important. Traction is that if you don't have that uh, kind of visionary integrator roles figured out as partners, it can create a lot of friction. For example, I'm very transparent with my a previous business partner that I run the current business and I, I bought him out of the business. 
it just didn't work because I thought he was going to be the integrator. He was not the integrator. And I'm like, I need an integrator. And it just, it was a fallout. So how did you guys maintain this relationship and keep maintaining it and keep growing it? What do you also see are important elements in picking partners in the business? Yeah. So there's a few things I would say. The first <laughs> is that as very young founders, I think it's just forced us to be very honest and transparent with each other. An exercise that Austin and I do basically every few months is we we rewrite our job descriptions. So we literally go through the task of saying, now, given what we know and where the business is now, how do our job descriptions change? And I think by doing that, I literally have a few years worth of job descriptions. And I think to that point, all, if you look at all my job descriptions, my time is spent on the things that lean into my superpowers, but that just looks different within the business. And so I think part of it is Austin and I are very practical. We're not super emotional people in the sense that we try as hard as possible not to have ego when it comes to wanting certain things and really trying to lean on like the merit of decisions. And obviously that's not easy because there can be like really provoking things that you really disagree with. But then when you think about it, you're like, oh, that actually makes sense. I just had I just had to protect my own ego, which is why I originally thought that I disagreed with it. And so we've had a lot of times, honestly, where we haven't necessarily agreed on things, but I think it's the combination of talking about it. And then if things get tense or heated and you disagree with something, I think the best advice was from Tim Ferriss's recent interview with Jerry Seinfeld, who Jerry Seinfeld said he does the practice of when he writes his jokes for a show, he'll write them and then not look at them for 24 hours. And I think what that does is it it separates you from your emotions because after 24 hours, any of the adrenaline or the cortisol that's running through your system uh, isn't going to cloud your judgment. In the first 24 hours, it definitely can. And so a lot of times when we talk through things as founders and big decisions we have to make, we start the conversation, but then we revisit it a few days or a week later when we've had time to process it in an unemotional manner. That's great advice. And speaking about, you mentioned as well that traction was uh, something that as a book that you that was useful to you in, in building the business. Are there any other uh, books that were just game changers in helping you grow as a founder? It's such a good question. Honestly, it's gonna sound crazy, but like I, I read actually more, my content consumption is more in the form of web articles and podcasting than books. The The only book that I would say has been really good recently is No Rules. So Reed Hastings' book about Netflix's mm -hmm. culture and how they built – their whole thing was building a culture of high talent density. So making sure that they were ruthless about having an incredibly dense uh, culture of like super high-powered talent and that allowed them to build the culture they wanted to. If they didn't have – a dense talent, they wouldn't have been able to build a really transparent culture of like feedback and intellectual meritocracy. But honestly, one of the best resources for me has actually been Farnham Street. So Shane Parrish's blog, mm -hmm. uh, I am such a big fan of just like understanding ways of making decisions and different models of looking at the same context, but in different manners. And Shane Parrish does an exceptional job on his blog and his podcast of outlining these things. So for example, one thing that he has an example of on his website that I've used a number of times is decision journaling. So I think a lot of people, when they make decisions, they focus on the outcome of the decision and it's the exact wrong way to look at decision-making. The way you should look at a decision is you journal at the point of making a decision, what your decision is, why you made it, what the potential costs or risks were, and then three months or six months in the future, you revisit that decision journal and you say, was this the thought process that I think made sense? Was this a sound thought process? Because let's say as an investor, you could have an investment that blows up and does incredibly, an investment that does horrifically. And actually the one that does horrifically could have actually been a better decision. And can you explain in regards to this idea of this decision journal? How did, is there an example of 
of how you practically used it and how did it help you grow in, a, in an example if possible. Yeah, I would use the example of something we're in right now. Morning Brew is in the process of launching a paid product. So we're launching this eight-week accelerator course for business leaders. It's called MBA, Morning Brew Accelerator. And the whole idea is in eight weeks, you get the foundations of being a well-equipped person to lead a company. So it kind of hinges on this belief in deep generalism, where to be a really successful professional, it means knowing a fair bit about a number of things, not just knowing a lot about one thing. And so we're running this program. And in basically my decision journal of it, there are reasons for why this program could be great and we should launch it, which is we want to diversify revenue. Morning Brew is an educational, like Morning Brew is educational for people. This goes deeper in that. Business education is inherently broken and this is a good place to play. The counterpoint would be our advertising business is great. Why would we do anything else? We're doing a general eight-week course. That's going to be really hard because going specific and niche is always better. And so to me, documenting the fact that a smart person could make the argument for why we shouldn't have launched this and why we should have launched it. But the most important thing was I wrote down, what was the opportunity cost of launching this? If this does not work, what is the opportunity cost? And it's a few hires and it's six months of time and it's this much money. And understanding if we could live with that was like the key part of the decision. So six months from now, if our MBA program doesn't work out, I'm not going to be upset that MBA didn't work out because it just didn't work out. I'm going to be upset if I look back at my journal of why we made the decision. And I don't feel like I've adequately, I don't feel like I adequately considered the trade-offs and opportunity cost of that decision, which cost us a lot more than what I had actually said at the time. Yeah, that, that's great. And is this uh, paid product, when's it coming? Is it out? I, I'll love to sign up. Yeah, so it's in uh, beta right now. We're launching our founding cohort May, first week of May is when it starts. We've already gotten thousands of applications for it. The first cohort's going to have 150 people. But our view is this could be Morning Brew's wedge into business education in general, this accelerator. And so I'll keep you updated and I'll keep your audience updated. Is, it, is there anywhere where people can sign up for the waiting list or? Yeah, yeah it's just, it's accelerator.morningbrew.com. Perfect. Make sure to check it out. And one of the last questions, you spoke about habits. What are some of the habits that you've instilled over the years that has helped you tremendously to become a better founder, a better person? For me, it is trying to be as good as possible about maintaining like the triad of what I would call like keystone habits, which is exercise, uh, sleep, and diet. I've noticed about myself when one of those things is not taken care of for more than three days. My energy is more depleted. My emotional state isn't as good. So that's something like I'm always focusing on. And then the second is as much as possible, I'm trying, like when I have downtime, I'm, I love learning. Learning is like my engine for creativity. So whenever possible, I'm just trying to learn. And I actually don't care necessarily what it's about. I just want to keep this engine roaring and so even if I see an interesting article about like NFTs or an interesting article about, I don't know, a, a new startup that's uh, launching, like I'm just going to read it because it will fuel my creativity and I'll start to uh, draw patterns between very disparate things. Incredible. Can you just dive a little deeper on the Keystone habits and what are, uh, your, uh, what's, what do they look like in regards to helping somebody develop? Because I think these are one of the key things that individual can create in their life. And looking in this way, I think you articulated it very well in regards to these are things that you must do every day. And I have them as well for myself. Uh, I wonder yeah. if you can get into the details of what do those habits actually look like for you? Yeah, for me, it's sleeping at least seven hours a night. It's working out at least five days a week. And it is... <laughs> It sounds crazy, but like I'm the world's fastest eater. So it sounds crazy, but it's like after every bite that I eat, I have to put my fork down because it forces me to be mindful about my eating. Like people need to practice mindfulness and different things in life. Mindful eating is very important for me because I will be the person who you'll be sitting next to at dinner and dinner served. You look over 15 seconds later and the plate is gone. And it's actually 
to me a really bad way of eating because my body hasn't told me I'm full yet. I've superseded the my body telling me I'm full. So mindful eating is actually a huge thing for me where I purposefully, after taking a bite to eat, put my fork down or take a, a drink of water just to force myself to be measured and paced in how I go about eating. And it's like such a, a small, crazy thing, but it's important for me so I don't overeat. Yeah, that's great. And is, are there any other habits that you want to introduce or build in the future? I would love to introduce like uh, no technology time. I don't like being super rigid in general. I think moderation is really important, but I do think that I'm addicted to Twitter and finding ways to like even go on like little Twitter sabbaticals for even like a day, I think would be very healthy for just my mental health. Yeah. One of the hacks that I currently use, and I'm actually my sabbatical or Shabbos should start around now is my wife, what she has, she's very good at actually having technology like uh, sabbatical every uh, weekend from Friday evening to Saturday evening. And That's she awesome. tries to get me to join as well. The, the two habits, uh, some of the things that I've, uh, I want to share with you in the audience that I found super useful to do this is if you have a partner, it makes it a lot easier. Whether it be an iPhone, you can send uh, like the, the, the you can set the, the time Whatever, yeah, totally. but you have your own code and you just want one more minute, 15 more minutes, and you're just like this addict. But if you give it to your partner and they have the, the passcode and you don't, you literally have to go to them like, hey, can you give me like, and my wife can be like, no. And, and, or even better yet is I haven't still do this. I actually have to give her my phone on, let's say, Friday night and I can't access it. I still haven't graduated to that. But what I do have is I have screen time for certain apps like Twitter, YouTube, all that stuff. I can't access them from, say, from uh, 9 in the evening till uh, 10 in the morning next morning. Yeah. Unless I can just do, I think, one minute. And anything extra, I need her, pa- her to unlock me kind of the passcode. So those uh, are like some of the things that you can potentially yeah. do. No, I love that. I think, yeah, screen time on your iPhone has helped a lot of people in setting those boundaries. And I think in general... Amir Ayal in, in his book, Indistractable, talked about this of there are really good hacks, if we want to call them that, for holding yourself accountable. One is having a partner that whether it's around exercise, whether it's like working, there's literally a website where you can, if you want to do deep work, you partner with someone totally random, but you're put into a Zoom together literally just to hold each other accountable to doing deep work. And it also turns into a little bit of like a networking tool. And there's other ways like people, I've heard the examples of people who want to write every day for 30 days or go to the gym every day for 30 days. They have their calendar with a dollar bill sitting on each day or $5 bill sitting on each day. And if you go to the gym that day, you keep your $5. If you don't, you don't get to keep your money. You have to either give it to charity or pay it to someone that you've set this pact with. So at least there's something on the line if you don't hold yourself uh, accountable to doing the thing. I think that's great. I'm going to check out that deep work Zoom session. I've actually, yeah, it's even crazy. In this time of even remote, I've actually was thinking to team up with some of our, I'll say, staff. And but a lot of them are still are afraid to have a Zoom call like with a founder for like an hours. But anyways, that's a great idea. Uh, thank you so much, Alex. I really appreciate your time. Where can people find you? Uh, where can they check you? More, yeah, find more about you. The only two things I call out are Business Barista on Twitter, and then my podcast is Founders Journal. And if you consider yourself a builder, whether that's an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur in a larger company, but you are a builder, my podcast is three days a week, 10 to 15 minutes. And the whole idea is helping you have the right mindset, framework, strategies, ideas, emotions, tools to effectively build. So I'd love for any of your listeners to check it out. Yeah, I highly recommend for everybody listening right now, if you're listening here, you're incredible that you made it this far. It was a long <laughs> journey. I, I, we're both very grateful for you. I think I highly recommend you guys to check, listen to the Founders Journal. It is actually, Alex, I haven't said this to anybody. You're actually the reason why I now started my own podcast, The Alex Icon Show, where That's awesome. I'm trying to... It's not as regular at the moment, but the reason I did is after listening to your podcast, I understood that even it's what you do is in a way like therapy for yourself yeah. and it's a way to actually keep journal and have that for your records in the future. And I know that 
there's videos that I made when we first started our business in 2010. I have this 30 day challenge where I made videos and I still found that's an incredible source for myself. And I think it's incredible what you're doing is sharing your insights. I think all your podcasts are super insightful. And this conversation that we had today was super insightful as well. I'm very grateful for you to be here. Thank you so much. No, thanks so much for having me. I love this.